And we are back with the first of not one, but two episodes of Ladies First this month. I'm Corey. Taylor's returning. And we have a wild Elizabeth with us today. Hello, everyone. Hello. And, you know, there's just so much going on at this point in time. We realized uh, we needed two episodes of Ladies First this month and next month and probably July. So you're getting double Ladies First all, all through the summer. It gives us something to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's queer it up. Yeah. This episode, though, um, we're going to talk about some drama that went down at the tail end of April. We wanted to give it a little bit of time so we could, you know, do some proper research and witness any potential additional fallout. And basically, um, something went down with the bisexual flag. Elizabeth, you want to give a brief summary of the drama? So, I originally caught wind of this because I'm sort of in the, like, the larger queer artist Twitter community. And so when I first caught wind of it, it was people basically saying, like, you know, I have merchandise with the buy flag on it. If you want me to take it down, come and sue me. And I was like, oh, that's weird. What's going on? Um, so what had happened was this organization called Binet USA had started sending out a couple of sporadic cease and desist notice to people. And I say people, really, I mean, um, it was like Target and then a couple of small buy artists. You know, people who were sort of like Twitter famous and they do like pins and, and fan art and that sort of thing. And so, of course, they were obviously very distressed by this, you know, because a cease and desist is scary. But then, of course... They went to Twitter with it and were like, this is this is BS, right? And Twitter went, yeah, this is BS. Well, the person who was responsible for these cease and desist did not think it was BS. And Taylor knows all about that. So basically, um, Binet USA, the current president, is a woman named Faith Cheltenham, who's been a president for several years. And she was behind the original tweets and... When people started freaking out, she started posting some very shady, suspicious posts on Twitter and Facebook. And eventually, Binet, Binet like shut down their Twitter and came back like a day or so later. And they also had like these really poorly written blog posts about the subject because um, Faith Cheltenham essentially wanted to trademark the buy flag and pr- and. She basically just started doxing small creators on Twitter by, like, posting the screenshots of their emails. And this has really kind of thrown the bisexual community in a tizzy because it's really, like, forcing us to, like, talk about a recent history and we've never had to before because um, Faith Cheltenham claims to be in contact with the flag's creator, Michael Page, and has been speaking for him, quote-unquote, and she's also erasing by history at the same time by doing that because she's making all these claims about him and the creation of the flag. And it's just a very shitty thing to do. And it's led to a lot of people, like major people in the political sphere of the bi community to talk about Faith Cheltenham's um, behavior and how there are allegations of bullying. Um, Shiri Eisner was one of the biggest speakers I recognized when she, Shiri Eisner is a well-known, like, bi-activist 
Um, she, she has a well-known book called Buy Notes for a Revolution or something. So Faith Chelton Hamison surely wants to trademark a flag that is a community symbol that has been open to the community for over 20 years and whose creator is on record saying that it is not trademarked. And it is a big, hot mess, to say the least. The interesting thing about this is, um, so there, there is a point that queer history is not well documented, at least not the way that it should be. Though this particular little piece of queer history does happen to be documented, because back in the day, all of the big queer groups had GeoCity sites and Angel Fire and all of that. But, you know, like back in the quaint days of the internet where everyone had their own website, there are websites that talk about this, about the creation of the flag and how where it was first unveiled. And this was in like 1999 to 2001. And they've been up on the internet for close to 20 years now. Way back, the Wayback Machine, baby. It, it's very good for the discourse. So the internet literally never forgets. If it's not on the Wayback Machine, it's in Google Cache. You can find anything that has ever been posted on the internet. Just, you know, word of warning. (laughs) I do want to quickly interject. When Taylor talks about essentially doxing someone, how that came about was once it became clear that Faith was essentially running the Binet Twitter, a petition was started to the board members who were identified saying, hey, we don't want her as the president of Binet. Well, she runs the email and all of that too. So she had access to all of the emails coming in. And she was taking a lot of those. It wasn't even the petition. Uh, Somebody on Twitter, pardon me, I'm getting ahead of myself. There was a petition created to get rid of her. There was also an email campaign that someone on Twitter had been like, hey, copy and paste this, mail it to Binet so the board members read it. And because she was in charge of the email, she got all of them and she started posting names and emails of the people who were sending that in to ostensibly the Binet board asking that she be removed. And that's what actually started the petition because she was effectively outing people. Yikes. Yeah. So it, it steamrolled yeah. very, very quickly. Well, and it wasn't even just that. It's that it became very clear within like a couple of days that she had control on pretty much all of the social media and the the outgoing correspondence of this, I guess, association, nonprofit. It's a nonprofit. Which... It's terrifying to me because that's not how you set up a company or a nonprofit. You always have a there's a certain division of resources that you're supposed to have in order to ensure that this exact thing does not happen. Right. With the fundamentals, it's like no one person has access to all the social media. Yeah. When we first set it up, that was the thing. It's like, hey, y'all, here's passwords for this stuff. Because it it should never be. You never know when somebody is just gonna you know list that go like crazy that. Uh, well i'm trying to be diplomatic and not you know have people being like you shouldn't throw that around but i'm trying you, you don't know when somebody is essentially going to do a corporate takeover via social media <laughs> that is true and the particularly weird thing about this one is that 
so when I first encountered it, my thought was, okay, it's a nonprofit. It's one that offer it operates at a very low budget. They're probably, you know, absolute, you know, boot on their neck pressed for money right now. So in a moment like that, when one is desperate and freaked out about the future, I can see how you might make a poor business decision like this and just like be grasping at whatever straws you can get but when you start looking through their twitter you realize that this is sort of start been building up for a couple of months now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah even the um founder of buy.org um i can't remember his name but he mentioned in a tweet about this controversy that this had been like a rumor floating around the community and back i think in february the um Binet tweeted about how like the the flag was created by organizers of theirs, but they've never been credited for their work. And of course they don't mention Michael Page in that tweet. Well, and then that's my other thing. It cuts out the other creators. She started doubling down like, Oh, Michael Page did this. And then, Oh, he's not actually part of us. He was an ally. And now it was this really bizarre thing. If she focused on Michael Page and cut out the co-creator, um, then she started like trying to discredit Michael Page and then she came back around to, oh, I speak for Michael Page, even though nobody, and trust me, Taylor has tried, has been able to get actually get a hold of Michael Page. See, that's what I was thinking is the reason why she chose him in particular is that he just does not have an internet presence, which, you know, it's fine. Uh, but it's it makes any claims she makes sort of suspect because it's I have to wonder how she got in touch with him, which she um, did yeah, like, I do know that, I think I remember, so I, I think I saw a tweet by her from several years ago that they met at a White House event for the bisexual community back around 2014, but I mean, that was years ago, if that was the case. Um, it is. It should be noted that Michael Page created the bisexual flag and then, in 1990, 1998, and then the following year, he co-created the bisexual, like, Celebration Day with Wendy Curry and Gigi Raven-Wilbur. Neither of those two women know how to get in contact with him, even though they are longtime friends and activists alongside him. Which is indicative to me that Michael Page is just very much, very much out of touch with mainstream activism in the community and just very much stepped away. Because this is whole thing back in the the late 90s and early 2000s, Connected to how Michael Page was an activist for the bisexual community. And honestly, Corey, I'm really glad you brought up how Faith mentioned that he was just an ally to us. Mm-hmm. Because I've never really seen anyone else talk about that. And that's something that bothered me immediately. Because um, the Twitter account was talking about how Michael Page is queer, but he's not bisexual. And he doesn't want to be associated with the flag. He was just an ally who wanted to give visibility when that completely contradicts the creation of the flag and its history, especially when you talk to anyone who knew Michael Page back in the day. And it's almost this way to sully his legacy and almost justify them taking control of this flags and mm-hmm. trying to trademark it. And also, it's, Binet is like pretty much the only group that has said that Michael Page was a co-creator on the flag rather than the sole creator. Like, Wendy Curry multiple times on Twitter and on her Facebook mentioned that Michael Page specifically created the flag and no one else. Because back in the late 90s, Michael Page was running a social media site called Bi Cafe, which was like 
uh, Facebook for bi people before Facebook was even a thing. It's a forum, Taylor. It was a forum. Yes. <laughs> I am revealing online community. Yes. I feel um, so old. And basically he created the bi flag and wanted like wanted to have like a symbol for the community that was also connected to his business and even unveiled the flag at a one year anniversary party for the bi cafe website. So everything's pretty deep in for a guy who's not queer. I don't know. I know he even like, (laughs) I even while just doing research found out that he wrote the lyrics to a song called like bisexual that was never recorded. (laughs) And how, like, he Again, went to, like... If Taylor can't find him, he does not want to be found, y'all. Because she did some digging. Seriously, he wrote a song? Yes, it's in my outline. It's, like, a, two verses without music. And it's, like, really cute and cheesy. About how, like, I've explored <laughs> way, places... I hope you're wanting sources for this. Because Taylor has written, like, the mother load of all sources for this episode. It's thorough. Basically, I'm like, if people want to talk about the Binet thing, I'm like, here are sources, clap back. Um, but yeah, so Michael Page was doing workshop panel stuff for bisexual, the bisexual community. In like 1998, he went on a local Florida TV show to talk about being bisexual. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, like it was this local Florida show and he talked about how like frustrating it was. And it was like on this random page of the original like buy flag website through the Wayback Machine. And I could not unfortunately find this episode online. It's just very it was like whammy Miami or something, very like local. But it was just <laughs> like I was just thinking about like, wow, the creator of the buy flag was on TV once and no one talks about it. And it really harkens back to the idea that the bisexual community has really lost touch with its history because our history is lumped in with um gay and lesbian people as well as just in general erased and forgotten um it was very interesting to research the origin of the flag because um michael page designed the flag based off the biangles and for the longest time i always saw that the biangles did not have an attribution attribution people thought it had no creator when i found some recent tweets from like an uh the, a New York bi community Twitter account, how Robin Ox, who's one of the like longtime bisexual feminist leaders, said that the bi angles, which are like pink and blue that intersect with a little purple together, mm-hmm. were created in the mid 80s by this one woman in her organization, Liz Nania, who is still, and Robin Ox is one of the main people behind the Boston Women's Bisexual Network. And so Liz Nania is an artist still in Boston today. And she created the biangles. And I also saw a recent tweet, tweet like going back a few years from a bisexual awareness conference that was quoted Michael Page as saying he created the biangles, the bi flag off the biangles and used the same color meanings. Because on his website on the bi flag that is often cited when talking about whether or not the bi flag could be trademarked, he talks about how like the pink color means same gender attraction while blue is opposite gender attraction and purple is about how bi people kind of blend and kind of can go into both communities. And I was like, wait, a woman designed the biangles and then Michael Page used those colors and meanings. And it's kind of very interesting to think about how like 
women's history and queer history intersect with that. And so we have this history of the bisexual flag going back into actually the mid eighties in feminism and stuff. And even more reason why it couldn't have been trademarked, not to mention the fact you have to reinforce a trademark continuously for it to stick. And it obviously has not been. Yeah. Monica Helms, who created the transgender pride flag, even tweeted about how, like, she tried to get the flag trademarked, and they're like, no, lady, you can't trademark this. It's a flag. Yeah, well, I mean, there's... These rules are in place for a very good reason. Uh, But, yeah, so if it's basic flags that... Well, okay. You can trademark certain kinds of flags. They just have to be so distinctive in design that they can't just be geometric shapes. You can't copyright or trademark a geometric shape it's the reason why you can't copyright dice so even even if everything that bayonet said about the flag was correct they still couldn't copyright or trademark it even if they couldn't have even done it at the time um yeah on his website michael page actually said that the bi flag was the only bi community symbol that had not been trademarked because he wanted to be for the community. See, that's the thing, too, is that it was, like, very explicitly written out, too, that this is the only symbol that is not trademarked or copyrighted. It's so that you can use it however you want for the community, which makes sense because pride flags are created with the intention of being recreated by the community. They are sort of meant to be sewn yourself. Or at least that was the original intention, is most people made their own pride flags. I apologize for the ice cream truck in the background. No, it's very Los Angeles. I, I, I swear the one thing you can always count on, even in the middle of a pandemic, is the ice cream truck. Sahara and I were recording uh, next week's episode of That's Haram, and we were both like doing you know, fasting, and the ice cream truck came by, and I, we just <laughs> Ramadan-brained. For like 10 whole minutes. <laughs> I was just thinking that that ice cream truck goes by every time we record an episode of the show. I know, I know. Yeah, I haven't been on for radar. a year and that there's the ice cream truck. I swear that guy has like radar for right when we're trying. I, anything I record for the fundamentals. Um, even something anyway. Jeremiah is recording beneath <laughs> the screen. So anyway, sorry back for on LA. topic. Back on topic. Uh, so... Taylor, you did some digging into bisexual history. Do you have any juicy tidbits that you'd like to add and that you found in your research? I do. So basically, um, there is a website about like flags. And back in the late 90s or early 2000s, they had an email correspondence with Michael Page. And he explained the meaning of the flag again and also mentioned that he unveiled the flag on December 5th, 1998, um, at a party he was hosting at a restaurant for the one-year anniversary of the Bi Cafe website. And I was like, okay, cool. And M- Michael Page is, what little we know about him is that he was a pilot and that he was based in Florida for a lot of his activism. And I was just doing some Googling and came across a newspaper article from December of 1998 that was listing out like events happening in the week. And they mentioned that Michael Page was going to be hosting this party, this one-year anniversary party, at the Deck restaurant of the Bahama Hotel at this particular address in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And this is very significant because this newspaper article basically reveals 
what we know in hindsight, was the restaurant where the buy flag was unveiled to the public. And this is was very important for me because I wanted to travel for my birthday, which is coming up next month, but that's mm-hmm. not happening. But one of the things I wanted to do was possibly travel to a place connected to bisexual history, but I couldn't find anything specific in my research. So we now have a very specific location that is has a moment of very specific bisexual history. Um, and I did some research, and the Bahama Hotel was actually a very gay-friendly space in the late 90s and early 2000s in Fort Lauderdale and hosted at least two other events um, for queer people. And it's no longer around. It closed several years ago, and it's is replaced, I believe, by the W Hotel by the Marriott, but essentially we now have a place as bisexual people where we can go and just be like, <laughs> like, it's basically like, I don't want to say it's like the Jerusalem of bisexuality, but it's the place where we can go and be like, this is our history. Well, and that was really exciting for me. That is a good thing to start uncovering these things, and like, really, Taylor, you should consider writing a book about this, but, um, <laughs> No, I'm being serious, because, like, a lot of this isn't documented, because even if you think about stuff like, okay, so, like, when you think about iconic locations for queer events, pretty much the one that most people will throw out is Stonewall. Yep. And how many people do you talk to who don't actually know that, what Stonewall is, like, the significance of the name, how it relates to the event? Yeah. Or, like, that it was a riot, or, I mean, like, part of it is that, like, the major movie that was released about it was, like, embarrassingly wrong. Was that the one where the dude? Yeah, that's. I was like, I remember hearing about that trailer and just being like, seriously. Yeah, that was the one where they had the white dude throw the first brick, and I was just like, yikes. (laughs) But a lot of queer history is sort of like this. Like you find a lot of people who are otherwise pretty good about being well informed about historical events who won't know much of anything about queer history other than maybe a few anecdotes about things that happened after they came out or you know major events like they they probably know something about the AIDS crisis or maybe they read a book in school about I don't know the Hollywood era they might have gotten if you went to school in um in college in California and you took a California history class gay LA is a book that appears on the reading list a lot so a lot of people have read it but queer history is, like, very centered around New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles. And so that's, like, another reason why, Taylor, I like that you're doing this kind of research. Because queer history does exist outside of these places. Yeah, like, I am from Delaware. And I was, like, doing some reading in Delaware. had actually a very, like, queer-friendly history throughout the 20th century. And I'm like, why didn't I find this out? Why didn't anyone tell me this? Because all I knew about Delaware and queerness was that they had a lot of gay bars in Rehoboth, but I have never been to Rehoboth gay bars. So it's just like very interesting to know I had this history I could connect, but it was also disconnected from at the same time. Mm. Which is also one of the reasons why it's so important to like do this research now so we can reach out to people who are on the ground when it was happening and like get their thoughts and perspectives before they, you know, pass away from old age or whatnot. Because, um, I mean, it's it's not like we can ignore the fact that half the reason that a lot of this history is so broken and fragmented is because the people who knew it died. Yeah, like, um, the AIDS crisis, like, we can't, 
Like, there's a really, there's a a picture that circulates often on Tumblr about AIDS, and it's, like, a picture of, like, the the original um, San Francisco Gay Men's Choir, and it's, like, the men in white are, like, from the original choir, and the men in black are, like, representing whoever died of AIDS, and it's, like, 90 or 95% of those men died. Yeah. And it's, like, very, like, surreal and a good visual representation of how devastating AIDS was to bridging queer culture and queer history from one generation to the next. And I mean, and just in and like from a bisexual perspective, you know, our history is erased on both sides. You know, you have straight washing by the mainstream academics and then you have um, queer academics like the gay and lesbian gay men and lesbians ignoring or downplaying um, like historical figures like relationships with people of multiple genders for example and how you know language was interpreted there's um something that interests me about talking about people who were queer and not in antiquity but say like you know like most of your your 20th century authors you know like Hemingway and Fitzgerald and like people who were very clearly bisexual which you can tell just by the way that they write about Mm-hmm. people of both genders but it's interesting depending on who you will talk to they will like with so a problem with gay and lesbians or gays and lesbians and i'm saying this as a lesbian uh know that this is full well that a problem we have that we will intentionally downplay people having partners of multiple genders because it doesn't fit the narrative that we want it to fit but it's kind of troublesome to come across this so often now in queer theory and queer studies because queer theory and queer studies have now been so influenced by the internet culture that I feel like maybe we need to go back to the academic part a little bit of it because things are a lot of things are getting mixed up in mm-hmm. translation. Like, it's this big game of telephone. Oh, I hate that game of telephone on the internet. Like, I always hate when people, like, here's a cool history fact about queerness, but then they don't cite where they learned it. Yeah. And it's so easy to just type in a book title. It's so easy. Um, Especially because by naming your source on something, you're helping to educate the people, help them reconnect with their history. Um, It's just so important. Especially with, with book titles, because, like... I'll be honest, researching stuff like this, especially if you aren't doing it for academic purposes, if you're just like a random person who was bisexual and was like, I would like to know more about the history of my people. Um, going into like a library and looking up resources yourself is extremely overwhelming. And sometimes something that can be helpful is if you see a little interesting tidbit, if it's cited, that gives you a starting point for your research. Definitely. Like, I've been doing a lot of research for the past few months on, uh, yeah. uh, as you, as Corey has made clear, um, on, like, bisexuality in women and how the word lesbian was actually, like, a very general term for queer women up until a couple decades ago, because it helps me then understand how to do research going back, because I'm like, oh, if lesbian just was a catch-all for queer women a um, hundred years ago, that will help me discern through the sands of time like who was like possibly bisexual and who may have been exclusively what we would now understand a lesbian so that's another thing is that um the language history got especially fragmented and like especially with the word lesbian because like 
I can see why there is pushback now as the modern connotation of the world word has evolved to the point where it means something very specific to a lot of people. But also, <laughs> you know, you have to acknowledge that the word did change over time. And I can see why some people are like, well, we should go back to that. But ultimately, if we should be approaching this from a more academic standpoint in general, because people will just like, so if somebody just throws out to you the, the, the idea that, um, that the word lesbian used to also include women who are bisexual, it just basically just means attraction to women. Mm -hmm. Um, if you said that to someone who had never heard anything to the to the sort anything to that degree, they would probably immediately knee jerk against it just because it's so different from what you've usually heard. I def I completely agree, and I it's like I hate when people decide to have like Twitter discussions without like any sources because. Okay, but Twitter is designed to make sourcing difficult. Like that, it, we, it we have to acknowledge that part of the problem is that the queer community, especially now, is so centered on Twitter and so centered online because we are so separated from each other that, like, this is just. But then again, okay, wait, I take it back because we had this problem on Tumblr too. And on Tumblr, you didn't have a character limit. You could cite as much as you want. You could put little hyperlinks into your paragraphs of information so people could click on them and check your sources but people didn't do it then either i just i took to i took two ap english classes in high school once junior one senior year so it always blows my mind when people don't even try to cite by mentioning a book title let alone like a page number or something and i definitely think it does not help that in today's world we live in that we are very much you know there is alternative facts. What is truth? Truth is what you make of it. And, like, our internet age with information and our relationship to information, I def as a general culture, I definitely think it does not help with promoting education among the queer community. Um, and I remember doing some reading. There was this one Tumblr who I sometimes check upon because... She, um, her girlfriend was an activist in the late, late 90s, early 2000s, and was on the ground. And something they would talk about is how, like, when the AIDS crisis was coming to a point that they could, like, look to the future, they stopped turning their attention from educating young people instead towards things like um, gay marriage, legalization, and um, transgender health care. And we basically have lost touch with that um, basic part of activism, which is educating people, connecting and building relationships with young people and helping them understand where they fit into, you know, the world and our shared history. I think some of that is also being pushed by a desire for assimilation and that, even when, when I was really involved in queer activism, which would have been like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, um, gay marriage was still like the only thing that anybody was talking about. Unless it, anything, uh, if you were talking about anything other than that, you were considered a radical. Yep, that was definitely something I would read about that idea that with the, the AIDS crisis decimated a lot of like the radical people in the community that were more overtly queer. Well, it's because well, the, the people who were most vulnerable to AIDS are, yeah, people who were most queer, people who were yeah. not, people who were not cis white gays were the most vulnerable. Yep. 
especially if they were working class. Um, yeah. It, and so assimilation definitely has affected how we approach education, which is a shame. And I wonder if how, how it might intersect with bisexual history because with bisexuality, you know, there's this pressure to pick a side essentially. And I don't know. Which is silly. Well, no, you, you have a good point there. And it's silly in itself because first of all, like polyamorous people exist mm-hmm. and many of them are bisexual, but the sort of, no- it even like the notion that you have to pick a side forever is really weird to me and like how pervasive it is even in like in gay both queer I shouldn't say queer gay and lesbians have this thought and then straight people have this thought and it's this weird uniting bigotry that we have where we sort of have this this weird underlying belief that bisexual people will eventually fall so well it's like a like a bouncing needle the mm-hmm. needle are going to go into left or right at some point they have to choose a side and it's really bizarre to me that someone could perceive a personality to be so static yeah i think the term is compulsory monosexuality or something and i've never heard that before but that actually is a pretty good term yeah i think i read it in a book like about like by media or something because it's the idea that you have heteronormativity and like compulsory heterosexuality, but then you have the heter- the homosexual community and culture like fostering its own version of that onto bi people, and it's like this joint thing because bisexuality could be seen as a way of like upsetting binary systems because you know, straight and gay cultures need each other to define each other, but then if you have this other thing coming in and being like, I can choose, and it's like, oh, no. Well, it's the same thing with, like, non the existence of non-binary people kind of just completely f- messes with the way that we talk about sexual orientation. Like, in order to include non-binary people in the conversation, suddenly all of your words don't work anymore. And people will push back against that because it's it's annoying to talk about, which is, you know, but that's just how language is. Language can be difficult. Yeah, um, I definitely like being online, see people, you know, non-binary and asexual people talking about how the talk used against them basically matches word for word and argument for argument on the talk used against why bisexual and pansexual people cannot be in the community. And there's a really good um, quote from a paper on the history of biphobia and transphobia in, I believe, the feminist movement. And it's the idea that um, cis, gay, and lesbian people are mad at bisexual and transgender people for passing too well and also passing not well enough. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's where you, like, you end up with, like, batshit insane things, like the turf idea that uh, that trans women transition, you know, to to be predators, or, like, that, that trans men transition in order to gain privilege. Yeah. That definitely, like, matches a lot with how bisexual people, like, will, like, go back to the straight world when they can't handle it. See, and that's the thing is like you'll see that, and the rhetoric just kind of all rolls down the line. Like everything that there's, like and that's like you see uh, once 
once the queer, once gay marriage rights were won, you notice mm-hmm. that they suddenly decided, okay, the wedge we're going to put is between trans people and everybody else in the queer community. And then they're like, all right, and the next wedge is going to be between bisexual people and the rest of the queer community. It's so like funny to me when people are like, oh, bisexual means two, it's transphobic and phobic when historically the bisexual and transgender communities have been allied against the cis gay and lesbian communities because of exclusion and erasure that they've had to deal with. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you just want to be like, slam a web screenshot of the Anything That Moves manifesto, which mentions how, like, there aren't necessarily two genders or something, and just be like, learn your bisexual history, folks. <laughs> learn it. And that's also, like, it's funny you mentioned about me researching a book, because a few weeks ago, I was, like, just feeling inspired, so I actually started doing an outline on, like, a bisexual history on specifically about American women, you know, starting with the idea of how like bisexuality thing became about with Sappho and the medical community. And then like really focus on 20th century history and how bisexuality fits into that. Because as an idea, bisexuality is only about a hundred years old and like the term being used for an orientation and it did not really enter common use until about the mid-20th century, which is why you didn't really see bisexual communities form until the 70s. And I actually have a theory that one of the reasons why bisexuality, like the term bisexual, took became more common in usage rather than pansexual, which was, you know, around in the 60s and 70s, was because you had people like David Bowie publicly identifying as bisexual on, like, TV and stuff. Uh. I am surprised to learn that pansexual is that old of a term. I thought that that was from the 90s, actually. Yeah, like, pansexual, like, as a word, dates back to um, the early 1900s and Freudian psychology. But we know it was dates back to being used as an orientation to at least the 70s because it was used in different, like, publications as an orientation. Like, it's often a New York Times article from 1974 cited. But I've done research on this one archive site called independent voices which scans um small press publications and you see like several like radical social justice publications that use the term pansexual like the way you use bisexual today that's interesting yeah like there's even like in this one like feminist journal there is a essay from a trans woman talk who literally uses the word bisexual and pansexual as synonyms together in like the early seventies. Yeah. It was interesting to start learning about how the bisexual and lesbian communities split off in the early seventies. Like, cause it's interesting to me that the word that we even needed to evolve, not evolve, but that the word even developed at all because mm-hmm. And, like, that's, what, like, when I first saw the the theory of, like, well, it was it Brad, Brad Pham anti-trans ideology is one of the reasons why the distinction exists in the first place. And I was like, that sounds a little suspect. But then I started doing some reading and I was like, oh, no, there is some weight to this. Yeah, there's definitely weight to it. Um, but it's a bit more complicated. Like, there's always traditionally there's been this, like, hostility some lesbians have to bisexual women in the community because, you know, who is the true lesbian, quote unquote, and also, there, there is a tiny thread of like 
women who have been severely traumatized by men do not want to be around them in any context. Is like, it, that's like the little the little kernel of like where I see like here's a legitimate reason why somebody would be like I only want to surround myself by women. That's fine. But that's not usually what they're talking about. It's like the things problem. like excluding bisexual women who have ever had any contact with men. The problem is it like Elizabeth says is there's this there is a subset it's like I completely understand. But the way it's expressed where you normally see it and you know turf chan which is what I call them anymore. L chat. <clears throat> Don't come after me, please. But if you go on there, it's virulent transphobia. You know, anytime they do refer to a bisexual woman, it's bi slut. Oh, yeah, it's bad. So, I mean, it's. I know we're talking a lot in this episode about history, and part of that is just because it's. <laughs> You know, we've ha- we haven't developed our own history as much as we really should have. And we need to start, like, really start congregating on... And I think this is what Binet kind of woke us up for. is like, we really need to start having this history available to, to us. You know, these communities more available to us. Because our current climate is... Trumpian, and there are Trumpian elements in the lesbian community that have the potential that I'm worried about to be violent. Unfortunately. Well, we also, we need to consider this from a preservation standpoint, is that, I know how I I said earlier in the episode, everything you write on the internet is there forever. That's true. But also, the internet's existence in its current format is contingent on a lot of freedoms. Right. And may not always be something that we have because let's be real the political situation is getting a little scary which is the reason why i feel that there's value in maybe looking into getting these histories better compiled into published books or into journal articles and that sort of thing um things that could survive the censorship of the internet yeah it's a two-pronged approach one we don't know how long we're going to have the freedoms we have two There are unique challenges, I think, that, you know, the transgender and the bisexual community face, especially, you know, both regarding, you know, the world at large, but also just within our own community. And I think we've spent a lot of time advocating, advocating, advocating as a whole. And then, you know, marriage equality happened, and I think... You know, there are people in the bisexual and transgender community that's like, wait, we fought for all of this and now y'all are turning on us? It was good yeah. when you wanted to get what was yours, but now it's like, forget the rest of us? Yeah, so, well, that's sort of like like things like trans healthcare yeah. and getting third genders and, you know, like getting the, the MX designation on driver's licenses and stuff like that. And it might, like, in that particular example, it might seem like a small thing, but it's like this fight didn't end with rich white people being able to get married exactly and even then like we still haven't gotten adoption rights in most places like we're not done you all need to sit back down you come still back don't here have work protections in many states where they yep. can still fire you just because you're not straight i was like there is for some reason same-sex marriage was this holy grail that a lot of people kind of internalized of like once we have there we're at the top of the hill no we're not at the top of the hill not even close 
And that's why a- having these histories are so important. It's why it's so disappointing when, you know, we have stuff like Binet imploding because, you know, for two decades, this was kind of a resource, one of the biggest resources for the bisexual community. And it just, in the span of maybe a week, like Elizabeth Taylor, you told me they have, they've gone radio silent, haven't they? Yeah, that's the thing is they just disappeared off the face of the planet after this. And like, it's especially a shame because long-term organizations with big followings are not super common in the queer community unless you're talking about, you know, your your HRCs and the GLADs and that sort of thing. But those are all super bougie organizations. Like, grassroots organizations, you know, the ones that, especially ones that have been around for a long time, we need to keep those around and... It's deeply disappointing that one that is so well known and also run by somebody who has previously had an excellent reputation in the activist community and as is actually very well known for doing a lot of good work that this has have to happen to this site. Yeah, it I think we were watching this unfold in real time when Elizabeth and I were saying to each other, it's like, that is two decades worth of goodwill that just went up in flames in a matter yeah. of 24 hours. Yeah, decades of work from other people, not the person who caused the problem. Right. Either. That's the other frustrating thing is that um, she has come back to the organization and is mostly responsible for what's going on here. I mean, I will say, you know, the board obviously decided to support her outside of the ones who resigned in protest. And I'm like, really? Yeah. You saw all the internet fallout, and you're like, yeah, let's double down with this. And then you go radio silent? Yeah, going radio silent's bad. Like, what just, it just allows people to just get angrier and more fractured. Well, that, or they forget it's happening. This is, I think yeah. they're hoping. Yeah, they're hoping we forget it's happening because everything else is going on. But something Elizabeth <laughs> has pointed out this is the worst possible time. To start some kind of brouhaha because everybody oh, right, yeah. is inside. <laughs> that is true. I, yeah, it says, like, this is the worst. That's what I love. Meltdown May is just delivering in spades. Because I was just like, this is the worst possible time to make a scene. Like, if you if you want to order attention, don't do it right now. Because you will get you will get that attention. You will, they'll, people will bring a dump truck of attention to your house because they have nothing better to do. They're, they're broke and pissed off and on Twitter. Exactly. Everyone is ready for a fight. I mean, we just saw it, you know, like last week with Chrissy Teigen and um, Karen. I'm going to call her Karen. She's the Karen Karen. in this situation because I can't even remember her name. And Marie Kondo. Like, you just saw that and they were super mad at the Karen. And then the switch just flipped and then they were mad at Chrissy. And then, you know, everybody else like, well, Marie Kondo is just sitting here over in her own lane and she came out just fine. I'm like, Kondo doesn't do internet drama. <laughs> she's just, she has her business and minds her own business. And it does just... not bring her joy, so she doesn't do it. Um, <laughs> you know. Nice. But again, it's like, this, we are at a very primed pump time for it just takes the smallest thing for that to blow up and people to come down on your head. Like, and honestly, I... in such a selfish way. And the way she tried to justify it to me is like, well, we didn't like people putting it on the Confederate flag. I'm like, OK, so you're conflating it to people being upset that you want to try and trademark it suddenly means they support 
people putting it on the Confederate flag. I hated the way she framed that. The crazy part about that is she still has no leg to stand on because the no. it's not trademarked, and also that you can't trademark just the colors. So a Confederate flag in the bisexual flag colors. God, I hate that this exists. Um, I mean, it's it's their American right, I guess, but like she can't do anything about it. Like it sucks, but there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Also, her like argument falls apart when you consider the fact that one of the people she like called out on Twitter to basically contact her and her organization about using the flag was HRC, like one of the oldest queer organizations fighting for our rights. Uh, HRC is HRC has a, a they have their problems, but HRC is also one of the most powerful lobbying groups for the queer community they have some of the best lawyers in the queer community they are not what people you want you to go thinking? after did you really want to kick that hornet's nest like go, going after H- going after hrc is like going after the aclu that's it's a big organization i'm like the amount of if they had decided to push it and not just been like swatted off like a little annoying fly if they have really decided to push it the legal fees alone yeah, would have carried the bayonet people to their graves, and, and also is even probably dead in the water anyway. Even if they trademarked it, like what are they going to do? Send a cease and desist to every little tiny queer creator on Etsy? Like I know that they were saying like, oh, we're not going after small creators, but, but then they, they went did. after a couple small creators. They did go after, and then they were like, oh, it's for a racist symbol. I was like, well, some of the people you're going after are people of color. <laughs> Every single, like, position they tried to defend what they were doing, it's, it's you know the phrase, there's always a Trump for that, or a tweet yes. for that with Donald Trump? Yeah. It's like, yeah. everything oh, God. they were doing, it's... there was a counterexample of them doing the exact opposite. <laughs> and that's also why I have a detailed outline, because yeah. clap back. I mean, again, we have a very, very long list of sources that we're going to have in the article, um we throw up for this and you know you you're more than welcome to check them out but again it's like i just can't fathom anyone thinking they would a be able to get away with this when the internet is forever (laughs) b doubling down on it c tripling down on it and then just like trying to slither away like nothing happened I shouldn't say slither. I don't mean to put in bad connotations, but like, you know, just kind of sidestep out and go radio silent and hope everybody forgets. I don't know. I feel like maybe she needs to take some time off and (laughs) contemplate these actions. I'm hoping that's what is happening. I hope that's what she's doing. Then there was a, we will only be using the bisexual person of color flag that Faith created and owns or something and no, but we immediately revoke all rights for anything Faith has said or anything on this website. I'm like, that, that's not how that works. She, you posted this on a public website, and also she posted those tweets on Twitter. She, you, here's my thing: you don't own your tweets. Oh right, that was where she was saying like you can't quote tweet me in articles, and I'm like, like yeah, you know that, that's, that's not how journalism part of the works. Terms I'm sorry. of service are. It's in the terms of service. Like, you can tell people, hey, you can't use 
my Twitter photos without crediting me or paying me for it, but, like, they can sure up straight up embed your tweets and plunk them wherever they want. It's in the terms of service that you use their public platform for for free. Yep. Yep. Which is why we're talking about our tweets. (laughs) Without fear of being sued, because you can't sue somebody for talking about something you posted on Twitter. That you agreed for their terms of service on that they could do. Unless you're Elon Musk, but you have to be rich for that. You have to be be insanely rich for it to matter. Long story short. (laughs) Long story short, kids. Think twice before you tweet something. Yeah, especially now because, again, as Elizabeth has said, this is the worst possible time to do a stupid on Twitter. Or on the internet, period. It is the worst possible time to be showing your ass. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of gawkers if you do. Yeah. Um, I hope... Go ahead. Oh, I just, I just... I hope that this whole debacle, long-term, will help the bi community come together and really, like, evaluate our culture and history and how it relates to the greater queer community and how specific bisexual activism can go forward. I was also thinking that this is a good indication that um, we need to to pay attention to how our history is taught and we need to make sure that there's some protections to prevent it from being co-opted by bad actors. Because people trying to retroactively claim a pride flag or a pride symbol, I get the feeling that this is not the first time something like this is going to happen as catering to this audience becomes more profitable. The last That's a good point. Is that the last time it's going to happen? It's probably not the last time it's going to okay. happen. I was like, when else did it happen? Did I miss the drama? <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet. But you know, just as and like this is this is more like an in, sort of a an individual doing this. But mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I I could see a company making an overreach like this. I could see, I don't know, HRC doing a dumb or something. Yeah. Somebody somebody, somebody... Uh, just did, didn't have her coffee this morning and didn't or yeah. didn't do the homework and panicked and was like we should do this because you know like that's because that's what happens when you don't have things well documented is it's very easy for things to get changed in translation it's funny you mentioned that elizabeth because in my research i found a website called majestic mess and it's basically a person doing research on queer history and pride flags and documenting all this stuff and basically trying to record our history in all visual like symbols Mm-hmm. And they actually like interviewed the person who created the pansexual flag, which was cool. So yeah, yeah, but that's history. Yeah, we need to document this stuff. All right, so know your wrapping history, up. Folks. <laughs> In summation, know your history. Don't show your ass on Twitter, and don't try to claim <laughs> something that you don't own. Yep. I mean, I don't. I just three points. Don't claim shit that's not yours. Don't show your ass. Learn where you came from. Agreed. Um, we, I did say we were going to be back later this week. We, week. Oh my goodness. Later this month. We're, uh, it's the final season of She-Ra is dropping on Friday. Um, so tomorrow, if you're listening to this on Thursday. So we're going to be discussing that. So that should be a time. You guys should uh, tune in for that one. Because I'm sure, you know, my legendary dislike of Catra is probably going to be coming out again. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to get flamed again. And I ask me if I care. 
Oh, but there's so much to talk about. We haven't talked about it since like season two. I know. I know. It's great to be back. It is. So yeah, Elizabeth and I are going to be back to discuss that. Taylor's going to come back with us in June as well. We're going to be talking some more um, overall queer history. So we have a lot coming up this summer. Y'all may still be doing safer at home, but don't worry. We're, we're, we're putting more content out for you to help you deal. <laughs> we'll keep you entertained. Yeah. Um, also, don't forget, we have other podcasts on the site. That's Rom beneath the screen of the ultra critics we have a live play if you like rpg called fey forge academy um they're one of our partners that um every friday they have an episode out so if you are into this fantasy thing and like live plays give them a check out too thank you guys for tuning in i know this was a dense episode (laughs) But uh, we do appreciate that you've been loyal to us and you keep coming back, even if we do take some hiatuses. <laughs> 2019 was one it. long hiatus, but you came back and we love you for it. We needed a year off. That's cool. Yeah. So that is it for us this time. Make sure you uh, check back with us later in the month for our sheer recap. Until then, y'all stay safe and take care of yourselves. Bye. Bye. Have a nice night.